When we look at the book of Psalms, there are a lot of passages that describe and command us to praise the Lord. We have a whole category of Psalms called praise Psalms. But are these types of texts that we find in the book of Psalms, do they make God out to be a narcissist? Just asking the question seems almost like heretical. And what I want to do is think through how do we understand what these types of psalms are actually trying to convey, as well as what is the actual character of the Lord. But I don't want this to just be a hermeneutical, exegetical type of question or a theological question, but I think it has profound implications for our relationship with the Lord. I don't think a lot of us would come outright and say that God is a narcissist, but we can have a view of God, and this spills over into our relationship with God, that views him as being distant from us. And because he is distant from us, we feel distant from him. We view God as being this great, grand, supreme being that's far away, separated from us. And he is great and grand, but that doesn't mean that he's far away from us. But we have this view of him that causes us to be distant from him and keeps us from embracing him. But it doesn't have to be this way. I think this is a misunderstood and even a wrong view of how to look at God, of his character, and even of how of what these passages are trying to say about our relationship and our response to God. So here, I want to look at what do these praise psalms actually say about who the Lord is and how we should respond to him? What are their purposes? And what is the character of God? And how does this affect our relationship with the Lord? I'm J.C. Schroeder, and this is Bite Size Seminary. To answer this question of, is God a narcissist? I really think we need to understand what are the function of these praise psalms. And along with that, I want to go back and forth between these two, is the character of the Lord. Now, when we read these praise psalms and the commands that they have for us to praise the Lord, it almost makes us think as if this is something that God needs, as if he is this egotistical being that just is ready to gobble up our praise. And if we don't, he's going to have some sort of identity crisis. That's not who the Lord is. And that's not what these praise psalms are describing. The Lord does not need anything. He is completely and totally self-sufficient. He doesn't need me to stroke his ego. He doesn't need me to make him feel better about himself. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, the, in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is a God who loves, a God who gives. He has always been this way. First John 4 tells us that God is love. That is one of his core attributes of who he is, his makeup. It's not something that he does, it's who he is. And this attribute of him being love is something that he is eternally, both before creation and after. All of the time, he has been love and he is love. But how can this be if there was no other being for him to love? Does he just love himself? That sounds, again, egotistical. That sounds narcissistic. This is where I think it's helpful 
for the biblical view of God, of God being a triune being, three persons in one essence, each member of the Trinity, have been loving one another, not just loving themselves, of staring in a mirror and going, aren't you wonderful, JC? Like, that's, that's weird, right? God doesn't act that way. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Father, and vice versa, all around. They are all mutually loving one another from all of eternity. And this is what spills out in creation and in redemption. I'm borrowing a lot of these sort of thoughts about the Lord and uh, the Trinity from this book here, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. It's really great. I'll link a podcast episode that I have to it below in the show notes and description. Because the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit have been mutually loving one another from all of eternity, that spills over into how they act and the reason why they would even create and act towards their creation, towards us. That their actions towards us is one of love, is one of giving. So God does not view his creation as a mistake. He sees it as a good. He sees it as a way, as a further extension of the love that he enjoys with himself, with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So this idea of God's love spilling out and expressing itself to his creation is not just a New Testament idea, it's an Old Testament idea with him creating the world, but also in him choosing Abraham to be that agent of blessing to all the nations, to the entire world. And we see that this is fully enacted and fulfilled in the action of Christ on the cross. We see most clearly God's love for us in the cross. We see it many times in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament many times as well. But it is at its high point at the cross. All three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are involved in this act of redemption. And it is Christ who desires to go to the cross for you and for me. So this is not a narcissistic, egotistical being. He desires and delights and, in, and his nature is to give and to love us. Take, for instance, Philippians chapter 2, a well-known verse. It says here in verse 6, who, speaking of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here the point of this passage is that God sees his very identity, Jesus sees his very identity as God, as one to go out and to take on our identity, to go out and love and to give, to serve us through his suffering, death, and resurrection. That's the type of God that we have. The ancient Greeks, they had a different view of God. They had a view of God who was needy, many gods who were needy, and humans only purpose was to serve them, was to give them grapes and to give them all kinds of stuff. And if they made too much noise, they were going to squash them, throw a lightning bolt and destroy the humans. But that's not who the God of the Bible is. Our God is a God who comes, takes on our own human flesh and suffers and dies and is raised from the dead so that we may have life. So God is not needy. He doesn't need our praise. He loves to come and to serve and to love. But with that, 
How do we understand these praise psalms, though? The Lord in his word gives us a gift by giving us these praise psalms because these praise psalms are not for his benefit, they're for our benefit. What the praise psalms are trying to do is that they are trying to reorient our vision and where we place our hope and our praise. The question is not if we'll praise. The question is who or what will we praise? And the Lord knows that if we seek and desire and praise other things other than him, they won't lead to flourishing. It will only lead to despair. And so he desires that we would rest in him, that we would see him as who he truly is, as this ultimate good, as this God who loves, and that we would orient our hearts to him. That's the purpose of these praise psalms. I like this quote from Jason Biasi. I think that's how you say his name. He says this, Human beings are praise-bearing creatures. We become what we love. The psalms try to shape what we love away from ourselves alone and those close to us so that we love God and all God's creation. They try to turn us inside out. End quote. So the purpose of these psalms is to bring us back to the Lord, into a right relationship with him. They're not for him, they're for us. So God is not some whiny, egotistical, out-of-touch, distant being. He is a beautiful, loving, wonderful God who desires to bring us close to him. And so he gives us these praise psalms to help us in our time of joy, to help us in our time of sorrow, to help us in all aspects of our lives to fix our eyes on him, to recognize him as who he truly is, not as some great distant being, but someone who brings us close to him. He is far and away greater than us, but he draws us in to himself. He knows that all of the other things that draw our hearts away from him will not bring flourishing, will not bring any sort of satisfaction. The question again is not if we will praise, but what or who we will praise. Will we praise ourselves? Will we praise our careers? Will we praise our things that we have, materialism? Will we praise some political leader? Or will we praise the one who suffered and died for us, who sanctified us, who adopted us. And when we praise him, not just with our lips or our emotions, because it's not just about I'm feeling super exuberant and I'm feeling very praising right now. We can praise even in times of suffering. We can praise even when times are not good. And we can praise even when things are good. But when we truly praise him, we're recognizing who he is and we're reorienting our hearts back to him. This keeps us from being distant, separated, at a loss from the Lord. We're drawing near to him when we praise him. And the joy and the gift of these praise psalms is that they teach us how to do this. It teaches us and pushes back on our own inner desire to reformulate what praise is and to, retran and to retransform it back to himself. So these praise psalms may initially feel like they are telling us that God is some kind of egotistical monster. But in reality, they highlight how much he is not this way, 
how much he is not a narcissist and how much he cares to serve and to give and to love us, to draw us to himself by teaching us of how to untangle our hearts away from ourselves, away from everything else that does not satisfy to himself, the one who does satisfy, the one who is great and holy and wonderful and beautiful and desires for us to come close to him. That is a wonderful and beautiful God. Praise. Praise.